I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to James chapter 1. Um, if you're a guest with us or if you're newer to State College Assembly, we've been in an ongoing series uh, since Easter Sunday called Get Real. And in the series Get Real, we're taking time to look through the letter, the New Testament letter of James, just verse by verse, looking through it and finding life application uh, in our own lives. And I think many times a temptation that we'll face when it comes to uh, God's Word, when it comes to reading a letter like the letter of James, or really any letter uh, for that matter in the New Testament or in Scripture, is that many times it's very uh, tempting to think that while it contain, can contain principles for life or truth to apply, that many times it's very easy to think that it's not really connected or relevant to issues that we face today, because after all, it's about 2,000 years old compared to the world that we live in. And if you think that this morning, or if you've ever thought that about Scripture, then um, I say it politely, but you really, you couldn't be more wrong. Um, God's Word speaks with great clarity and great truth into our lives and great application. And while the overall focus in the letter of James focuses on taking our faith and letting it be lived out, that real faith produces a lifestyle that's reflective of the one in whom it follows, that it says that real faith is going to manifest itself through our life, in James's letter, he begins to address a topic that um, affected the world in which his audience lived, believers scattered throughout the world, but also touches on a topic that very much impacts our world today, and that is the issue of relativism. If you're not familiar with the issue of relativism, relativism is an idea, it's a mindset, it's a philosophy that really anything goes. What may be true for you is not necessarily true for me, that morality is open for uh, discussion, it's open for personal decision. And the worldview of, of, of relativism stands in complete uh, opposite direction as it does from a Christian or a biblical worldview. As a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ this morning and you're sitting here, or even if you listen in on podcast, um, I know many are traveling, different ones are not able to be with us, but if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've come to a place of repentance of your sin and confession and the lordship of Jesus Christ, giving him control of your life, then when you make that decision, even though you continue to live in this world and you're surrounded by this world and this culture, when you make that decision to follow Jesus, what you're doing is you're choosing to align your thinking and choosing to align your values and choosing to align your living with a different value system. You're choosing to align your life with a different culture, with, with, a, with a kingdom culture, with a kingdom mindset of who our Heavenly Father is. One of the things that, that has stood out to me recently in reading through uh, the Gospels and reading through the New Testament, there's a time when Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, just before um, he's taken off to be crucified. And, and Jesus has had these accusations that he's a king. And so Pilate, he's standing before Pilate, and, and Pilate says to Jesus, and something of this effect, he says, so you're a king. Where's your kingdom? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And while there's a number of things that you can take out of that and apply it, one of the things that applies to us very real and very right now in today is that when Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world, that means his followers will live by a very different value system. They're going to live by a very different mindset. They're going to focus on different things. Their values are going to be set by eternal principles, the truth of what, how God sees it, rather than the culture or the age in which we live. 
When the Bible oftentimes talks about the spirit of the world, many times the, world, the word world is translated it. Uh, the word that's used for world is translated world in our scripture, but many times it's actually describing a word that's used is called age. And when the Bible talks about an age, or like the, the, the spirit of the age, it's not just talking about over the last 30 years, the last 40 years, the last 60 years, or even the last 100 years, or the last century. When it talks about age, it's talking about the entire age, the entire period where sin has affected creation. And it says that entire age, that entire time where sin has affected creation, that it's going to continually drift and try to turn away from God's values, from God's way, from his purposes, from his plan. That the natural drift is away from God, not to God. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, when we find ourselves living in a culture and living in a value system uh, that, that believes in um, that there are no such things as moral absolutes or in a value system that is, that is defined by uh, relativism, Come, we as a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to make a choice as to where, we will, where our allegiance lies. We have to make a choice as to what our thinking will be shaped by. Because whether or not we acknowledge it or realize it, relativism is shaping our culture. It shapes our entertainment. It shapes our educational system. It shapes our parenting. It shapes your thinking. It shapes your life. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that. And that's what James points out, is that we don't, we don't live in a, in, a, in a value system with a sliding sense of moral, but it's defined. It's defined by God's word. It's defined by the truth of who he is, and that it really hits home in our lives. And one of the things that happens as a follower of Jesus, when you choose to live by the value system that God has given us in his word, by the standard that he's given us, when, when you find that you make that decision to live by that, there's another factor that begins to come into play to try to pull you away from that, and that's the factor of temptation. We looked at the topic of temptation in, our, in the fall in our series called Clean Slate, and if you were with us, you may remember the fishing, uh, the fishing rod and the lure that I used to talk about temptation and how temptation is continually trying to bait us or to pull us away or to lead us away um, from, from good things, from the things that God has for us, and we talked about that. Um, but really, temptation, the whole point is to lure us away to lure us away from God's design, to lure us away from God's purpose, to lure us away from, from his grace, from his goodness, from his love, from relationship with him. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, what James says is he, he says we must consider, we must take heed. He says that in verse 2, to consider the, thing, the trials that will come, to consider the testing that will come, to consider the temptations that will come, and to ready ourselves, ourselves for that. Um, one of the things in this series that we have talked about, I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this series, so just to kind of bring you back up to speed, we've taken time in James chapter 1 to look at testing, we've taken time to look at trials, and now we're going to take time to look at temptation. And when it comes to those three words, trials, testing, and temptation, while they, in our English translations we see those three different words and it helps us to see the difference of them, uh, what James, when he writes those words, he's using the same word, but they're translated to help us see the significant difference, the, the vast difference between trials and testing and temptation. And one of the things that by way of refresher that we talked about when it comes to trials and testing, that those are always rooted in God's goodness, that he's, he's seeking to, to strengthen us, to mature us, to move us along in our faith. When it comes to, to temptation, they're always rooted in this culture, they're rooted in this world, as we'll look at, they're rooted in our own selfish desires. And the enemy's play in that is to separate us and to bring us down to destruction. So with that, let's look in James chapter 1. Uh, beginning in verse number 13. I want to look at verses 13 through 18, and then we'll just we'll talk about these verses for a few minutes this morning. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be the kind of first fruits of all that he created. So if we're to take James's uh, instruction in, in verse 2 to consider, to consider the things we're going to go through, to consider the trials and the things that will form our lives and will shape our lives, if we're to take that and to really consider it, we need to take time to consider temptation. See, many times for you and I, each one here at some point will find yourself, if, if you haven't already, and even just since in your waking hours, you will find yourself in the crossroads of temptation. And so often when temptation comes, it's not like you just see it and immediately recognize it and, and you see that it's there. Many times you'll find that you're several steps into the journey before you really clue in and recognize what's happening. And so James says that if we're going to be wise and we're going to take our faith and put it into action and to live it out, then one of the best things that we can do is to consider the journey of temptation, the path of temptation, the spiral of temptation and sin that we each often will struggle with and face, and to consider its journey so that we can be wise in recognizing when it comes so that it doesn't move so fast and we find ourselves in a place of failure, but so that we can emerge victoriously and in the end emerge mature and strengthened through what we faced. So I just want to show you a couple of things that James highlights when it comes to temptation. One is the cause of temptation. The second thing is the course of temptation. So let's look at this first one, the cause of temptation. Look at verse 13 and 14 once again, the cause of temptation. When when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. It says that each one is, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. One of the things that life has really revealed, and I see it played out so often in so many different settings, is that mankind is always looking for an out. We're always looking for an out on being the, on being, uh, the cause of an issue. In other words, we're, man often likes to view himself as a victim, I'll see that in, in counseling, I'll see that in issues, I'll see that in struggles, I'll see that in failure, is that so often, rather than taking ownership of what an individual has done and how they've failed or the compromise that they've led to, they always point to something else. They'll point to, I've heard people say, well, the devil made me do it. Um, I'll hear people talk about, well, you know, my, my phone and just, and, and the things that it led to, or well, I had unaccountable time, or my, my spouse this, or they always will point to other things that led to their failure, but almost always will, will find a way to not take full ownership and, and recognize, uh, take full ownership of the blame of the choices that they've made. And when you think of that and consider that, what James is saying, he says, he says, when tempted, no one should say, or some other ways that he says that no one should say, or no one, no one should reason, or no one should try to think, or should try to consider, or to try to justify their sin by pointing to other things. One way that we'll hear it often in our culture is, well, God just made me this way. This is just how God's made me, to point to God, to justify the behavior and the desires that we live with. 
But really, that whole idea of not accepting blame for our failure, not accepting blame for temptation and for sin, is as old as creation, as really the fall of man and creation itself. Look with me in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, this is just after Adam and Eve have sinned. They've just given in to sin. Sin has just entered the picture. Genesis 3.12, the man said, so Adam says, the woman you put here with me. So God's asking, what's happened? What, how did sin get in the picture? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So you see Adam, who's he pointing blame to? Did you say Eve? It's God. He's pointing blame to God. Many times people look at this and they say, well, he, well, you know, he's blaming someone else. He's blaming God. He's pointing right back to God. And that's often what we do is we look at our sin. We look at our struggle. We look at the, the cycle we're in, and then we find something to point to rather than taking full ownership of it. But he says in, in verse uh, 13, he says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, that God is not the source of the temptation. He's not the source of the issue. He's not the source of the failure. He's not the source of the struggle. So it's coming to ownership of the of of the struggle, and that, and that it doesn't originate or begin with God. In fact, if you take that and you compare with how God is described in verse 17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above. And we've looked at this verse in different, a number of different series in the past, but when he talks about good, and he's talking about the goodness of God, He's not talking about 90% good. He's not talking about 95% good. He's not talking about 99.9% good. He's talking about 100% complete good. That when we recognize that, that God is completely good. An example that I've used uh, before that I think helps give the full picture of understanding the goodness of God that's being described here is that at different times and different seasons, you can get a box of chocolates and you'll have a variety of different chocolates all throughout. Some of them are really good. Some of them are not so good. And sometimes it's just a guess. You don't know which kind you're getting and you might get it and you might bite into it and you like what's there. Another time you bite it and you just don't like what's there. And, and you look at that, that gift of chocolates that someone gives you and you might say, well, it, it, was, it was good. And you're saying it was good, meaning most of them were good. Some of them not so much, but you're not going to go to the person who gave it to you and say, hey, thanks for, the, thanks for the nine great pieces of chocolate and the one crummy piece of chocolate. You don't do that. You just say, hey, that was a good gift. That was a great box of chocolates. You just, you do that. And when, it, when the Bible talks about the goodness of God, it's not talking about nine out of ten times he's going to be good. It's not talking about eight out of ten times he's going to be good. It's not talking about 90 out of 100 times he's going to be good. It's not talking about 990 times out of 1,000 he's going to be good. It's saying every single time that God is at work in your life, his goodness is being manifested. That he's always good. He always operates from a, a position of his goodness, of his greatness, of his kindness towards us. The second thing, that, the word that's used to describe God and understanding who he is in verse 17, it says every good and perfect gift is from above, who, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. This is every good and perfect. When he uses the word perfect, he's talking about the, the, from top to bottom, left to right, the complete picture, the big picture. That God is, that God is always perfect in how he works and how he functions and how he moves in our lives and how he blesses. He's always perfect. 
And you might look at that and you might look at those circumstances in your life right now and the, the things that you're facing, the obstacles, the challenges that have come your way. And you might say, well, you describe the goodness of God and you describe the perfection of God, but how can you take that and you apply that into the things that have happened in my life? How can you take the goodness and the, and the perfection of God and apply that into the pain in my life, the circumstances that I'm facing? And with that, it's understanding that when, when the perfection of God is talked about and the goodness of God is talked about, it's not talking about the single page in a book. It's talking about the whole story. It's talking about the whole journey, first to last, beginning to end. And so sometimes when we get caught on the one page that we're living in, we get caught on the one circumstance we're facing, the one thing that just doesn't make sense from our perspective, that just doesn't seem to have any sense of God's goodness or perfection in it, is to understand that perhaps we need to wait a little bit longer and continue to wait and see how God's working. And there are times that we won't see the final picture until we get to heaven, but it's understanding that God continually manifests his goodness and his perfection through my life in other ways. And so while it may not make sense in this piece, I'm going to trust that this piece is consistent with how he's continued to manifest himself to be. And so when we look at that and we, we look at what James, how James describes God, it's recognizing that we cannot point to God to justify our sin or to justify our temptation or in any way say, well, God just made me this way. This is just how God made me. This was just the, 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 the circumstances that came my way that there really is no room for that. In fact, James goes on to say, if you want to know the source of your temptation, he says, then look in the mirror. Look at verse 14. It says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away, dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. It says they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, notice something. If you have your Bible, whether you're in U version or you have your uh, uh, paper copy of your scriptures in front of you, look at verses 13 through, uh, through all the way what, with, what, with what we've read. That You'll notice that there's not, there's not an individual mentioned there once. You'll notice the devil is not mentioned anywhere in there in identifying the source of temptation. That the devil is not mentioned there at all. That the real issue with temptation comes down to the things that are happening in our own hearts. That the real issues with temptation always come down to what's happening, what's being, what's being manifested in my own life, in my own thinking. What am I allowing to, to fester and to grow there and to recognize that? And that's what James is pointing out. He says, you're, if you're having sin issues... If you're struggling, you need to stop, look in the mirror, and take ownership of those issues. You need to take ownership and come to that place of recognizing that it's an issue that has to be addressed. In, in verse 14, he says that, that we're dragged away by our own evil desire. There are those who will try to tell you and convince you that man is basically good. And if they're talking about mankind before the fall and creation, then they're right. That man is, was good. Was made in God, he was made in God's image. But if they're trying to describe the goodness of man because of the kind act that was done on the way to church today or the kind deed that you did in the supermarket or the kind gesture that you did to your neighbor or any other thing that we would point to to say, well, man is basically good, then we're forgetting the whole point of Scripture is that man is basically evil in need of salvation. That when it comes to understanding mankind that man is not basically good, he's basically evil. What the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 is that man left to his own devices and to his own way will drift not towards God, he'll drift away from God. It says that man in his natural state is at enmity, he's, at, he's hostile to God. That he won't look for God's ways, he'll look for his own ways. He won't look for the things that will please God, he'll look for the things that please himself. Even in, in serving others and even in doing kind deeds, it's still tainted by the whole rule and reign of self within. 
That's why it says you want to know the source of your temptation. Look within. Look in your own heart. Look at the things that are within. And that if man is basically good, then in the end, Jesus would be just basically an add-on. That he's just added on to the picture of who we are. He's kind of the bow on the top. But Colossians chapter 3, talking about our relation to Jesus and who he is, it describes Jesus and it says, who, Jesus, who is your life? It doesn't say Jesus, who is your add-on, Jesus, who kind of makes you a little bit better. It doesn't make Jesus, who makes you a little bit kinder, Jesus, who makes you do nice things. It says, Jesus, who is your life? In other words, he is your everything. That's why the Bible describes that when we come to the place of, of realizing that we, that in and of ourselves that we are evil. In and of ourselves, sin has tainted and corrupted our soul. It's tainted and corrupted our mindset. It's shaped and changing who we are. That the Bible says we have to come to a place where we don't just need an upgrade. We need an entire rebuild. That's why in Colossians, or in, in 2 Corinthians, it says that the Holy Spirit comes and he gives us a new soul. He changes us from the inside out. And that's why that place of repentance and confession is so important. It's coming to that place of acknowledging, say, God, I, I, I don't just need you to, to fix a few parts of my life. I don't, I don't need you to just come and make me a little bit better. I don't need you to just help me to be kind to the people who are, who are mean to me. I don't need you to just come and, this is coming to a place of repentance and saying, God, I need you to rescue me from me. I need you to rescue me from the kingdom of self that I'm living in to a life that's oriented around me, a life that's thinking about me, a life that puts me first. He says, I need you to rescue me from me. And so we repent, we confess, and we acknowledge and invite the Holy Spirit, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit to come and work in us. And the Bible says he changes us from the inside out. And he begins to change our thinking. He begins to change our living. He begins to change our choices. That's why in Romans chapter 8, it says the mindset controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. That is focused on the things that please him, the things that honor him, the lifestyle that honors him, the lifestyle that, that puts Jesus first. And, and when we come to those places where self tries to get back in control, we have to deal with it and we have to acknowledge it. And that's what James is saying. He says that it's recognizing that when it comes down to the temptations we face, that it comes to places in our hearts and in our lives where self begins to try to reign or take control or call the shots once again. So the first thing is realizing the cause of temptation is self to look in the mirror and realize that it comes from within ourselves. The second thing I want you to see that James talks about that I think we can learn from is, is not just the cause of temptation, it's the course of temptation. It's the journey of temptation that we walk through. How it plays out in our lives. Look at verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. In uh, his book, the, the James Code, O.S. Hawkins talks about the journey of temptation, and he, he takes time to describe uh, just how temptation plays out, but he gives a picture, and there's a very powerful analogy of, of how temptation works in our lives, and he uses it, the picture of a weed in a garden, uh, a weed in your yard, and he talks about how it, it has a root system, it develops a shoot, and then ultimately it produces, and it not only does it produce just on that, that one weed, but it begins to spread, that it quickly manifests itself all across your yard or all across your garden or really anywhere and everywhere um, that it can spread. And he uses that, in that picture that he uses, just a powerful picture of getting an understanding in our lives of how temptation works. And so with that in mind, I'd love to just share with you the three steps or three things that, that he talks about when it comes to temptation and understanding how it works and how it functions in our lives. So the first one, looking, this is all out of verse 15 again. He says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The first thing is understanding the root. The root of temptation is a selfish desire. 
The root of temptation is always a selfish desire. God has made you and I with different cravings, with different desires within us, but it turns into temptation when those desires are taken and perverted or twisted to, be, to find fulfillment outside of the design and the purpose that God has for you. That's why there are things in Scripture that are listed off as a, a person who follows Jesus, who's committed to following his leadership, is not going to walk in this path. They're not going to make this, this, these decisions. They're not going to behave this way. They're not going to do this thing, these things. Because it's recognizing that those are all things that feed the desire that does not keep Jesus at the center. That they're all things that are anchored in this selfish, sinful desire, desire that's focused on ourselves. And when it talks about desire in Scripture, it's it's really talking about a soul longing or a soul craving that we have. And it's really a desire coming to a place where it becomes all that you can think about. Its fulfillment becomes all that you you can think about, you desire, you long for, you want. It becomes kind of the focus of your your desires and your actions. And and this is the first step. It's the first step of temptation. And as I've said before, it all happens so very fast. It might go from desire to action to every, the consequences so very fast without even stopping and seeing and realizing it. One of the things that's, I believe, very important for a follower of Jesus to recognize is that when it comes to that initial desire to sin, that initial temptation, that desire to, to, to take something and pursue something outside of the design and, and the boundaries that God has placed around you, it very rarely is going to feel like sin. Very rarely, if ever, will it ever feel wrong. Most often, it's going to feel something like you wanting your own way. It's going to feel like something that, that you're craving, that you want, that, that, that you wish you could have or that you should have or for some reason just you, you, your mind fixates on it. And it's, it's never going to feel like sin. It's always going to feel like, like something that you want or something you feel like you should have. But it's what we do with that decision that, that really decides what happens in the rest of the journey. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 26, telling his disciples, he said, he said to watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. He says you need to have insight and recognize the, journeys, the journey and the path that your heart will often go on and stop it at the head, stop it at the beginning before it continues to grow and manifest. It's important that this is a stage I really believe it's, it really highlights for every follower of Jesus the importance of taking captive your thought life. Taking captive your thought life at the very beginning. So often believers allow their mindset to be shaped and, and formed by the ways of this world and the value system of this world. And before long, thoughts will just come and go and with no control whatsoever. And before long, a follower of Jesus is controlled by their thought life. But according to Scripture, the follower of Jesus is to control their thought life. And that's, what, that's this beginning step, recognizing the influence and the effect of sin, that it begins with a selfish desire. And, and James uses a word uh, to describe this step. He, he says conceived. He says, then after desire has conceived. Conceived talks about two things coming together, and, and it's really talking about that desire and the opportunity to, to act on it, the, the conception of that temptation and that sin in our life. The next step, if the first one is the root, the selfish desire, the second step is the shoot, a sinful decision. It's a sinful decision in our lives. Look in verse 15 one more time. Then after desire, desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. If, if the first step is a sinful desire, the second step is a sinful decision. Really left unchecked, sin will always give birth, desire will always give birth to something. It will always give birth to something. In your life, the longer you allow a desire to linger, the longer you allow that, that, that urge to linger, the more it will eventually manifest itself. 
And many times we'll, we'll think about that desire and you'll allow your mind to fixate on it and continue to fixate on it or continue to turn on it, continue to think about it. And before long, it will eventually lead to manifesting itself in some way. And really what James is saying here is he says that, it will, that those desires, it gives birth to sin. It gives birth to action. A different way to think about it is that it's talking about like a, a baby in the side of a mother's womb that at some point that baby will manifest itself. That baby will come out. Those desires that we allow our hearts to hang on to and to linger on and things that we know are not consistent with the lifestyle of who God's calling you to be, the longer you hang on to them without addressing them, the, the more prone they are to manifest themselves in their lives. Another way to think of it is as Numbers says in 32, verse 32, it says your sin will find you out. In other words, your sin will always rat you out. Your sin will always rat you out. It may be hidden now. It may be out of sight for now. Your spouse may not know about it. Your neighbor may not know about it. Your coworker may not know about it. Whatever it is, your sin will always rat you out. It will always manifest itself in some way or another. And the way I, I most often have seen it play out, that God in his grace and in his mercy his desire is to rescue us from, from something, from a sin or a, a temptation that can, and a desire that continues to rule and reign over your life. Because in, in, in 2 Peter 2.19, it says that a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. That as a man is a slave, he's, he's a captive to whatever has taken ownership of his life and his thought life. A man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. And God's desire is that if, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, his desire is that you're not mastered by anything other than him that your life is surrendered and yielded to him. And so when he recognizes that there's something that has taken ownership of your life, something that has taken ownership of your thought life, something that has taken ownership of your, of your actions and of, your, of who you are, that God in his grace will begin to recognize that. And he'll recognize that you're, allowing, you're living out this cycle that, that James is describing of temptation and sin. And God in his grace wants to rescue you from that. And so what I'll often see played out is that God in his grace will, will try to deal with an individual privately about an issue. He'll continually deal with them privately about that issue that they're facing, that issue that they, they've given themselves to. And it might, it might mean through just the inner working and prompting and convicting of the Holy Spirit that he'll try to reveal and he'll try to, to, to point it out and bring them to a place of, of conviction and, and repentance. And repentance not meaning... Do it, then go back, do it, then go back, do it, then go back, but rather repentance meaning freedom, walking away from it, being transformed. And that God in his grace will continue to bring a person to that place and try to, to bring freedom, to try to, to bring, allow the freedom of, of his grace to come and break those chains and to set them free. It might be through an individual that, that is aware and is trying to speak to you about it. But God in his grace, he won't allow you to stay there. Because many times we get individuals can live in that cycle and continue to live there and continue to think that, well, there'll be another opportunity for this grace to come through and another opportunity, it's going to be different the next time. And they'll just continue to live in that cycle again and again and again. All the while, all that you're doing is reinforcing that sinful habit and that sinful tendency in their mind. And so God in his grace will not allow, he doesn't want us to be mastered by anything. And so in his grace, he'll try to deal with it privately for a while. But then in his grace, we'll reach a point where he'll expose it where sin gives birth, then it manifests. And most often when I see it happen, it happens in a, a very embarrassing way, sometimes in a very public way. It happens in a way that, that exposes the sin for what it is, but it brings that person face to face with the reality of what they've been choosing. And while that can be painful, while that can be destructive, while that can be damaging in so many ways and so many levels, 
God sees the value in the freedom that he brings through that. Because his desire is that you're not ruled or mastered by anything. And so he'll use it. And if we respond, even in that time, if we respond properly to his grace, then that becomes what James talked about at the beginning of, of his letter, about the hard times can become journey, a journey of maturing, a journey of growing our faith, a, growing, a journey of stretching our faith. But it says that, that sinful desire always plays out in sinful decision the more it's allowed to, to uh, manifest itself. And then the last thing that James gives us when it comes to this course of temptation, so first is, is the root that sinful desire, the second is the shoot, that sinful uh, decision, the third one is the fruit, a sure defeat. Look in verse 15. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Notice that it gives birth, but it really it's stillborn. That it's death. That this is the point where there is no more fun, there is no more enjoyment, but it's death. It's, an, it's, really, it's talking about a, a death, an ending, and really what James is saying is to look now where your sin is leading you. Take time to look right now where your sin is leading, where your choices, choices are leading you. That if there's, even as I'm talking, if there's a, a private matter, a private sin, that something that you hold on to, something that you struggle with, something that, that, that you want to desperately be free of, to take time now to think about that and think about that one thing and what would it look like if it was manifested out throughout your life and everyone knew it? What would it look like if those around you knew it? That's what he's saying, is that sin brings death. But when the Bible talks about death, it's not just talking about something in the physical realm, not just talking about the consequences. When the Bible talks about death, it really is talking about eternal separation from God. Look how, how Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For the wages of sin is death. In other words, the, the wages, the, the earnings that you're making because of the choices you're living in, says the result is death. And the death that, that, Romans, that Paul talks about in Romans, the death that James talks about, is not just physical ending in this life. It's talking about a spiritual separation for all eternity from God. That is the final play in all sin. The, the play in sin is not your pleasure. It just it plays to sin's advantage that you find pleasure in it. But the play of sin is always eternal separation from God. The final death, death in eternity, separation from him. But it's important for us to look at and realize that while there's this eternal consequence, if we allow sin to continue to rule and reign in our lives, that while the, the, the eternal consequence is, is death, separation from God, that it gives us a very firm and a very sure warning um, for now in our lives. And that is to realize that while there's an eternal death that can happen, separation from God and cut off from him from all eternity, that there is also death that nat naturally manifests itself in this life. And I'm not meaning the physical death where there's a funeral, but if you've allowed sin to rule and reign in your life and to the point where it finally manifests itself, many times that death manifests itself in the death of a marriage, in the death of health, in, in the death of, of uh, any number of good things, family, uh, in the death of, of employment, that sin will always manifest itself and it will always exact a toll much larger than you ever think you'll have to pay because that's the nature of how sin works. And so James gives us a final warning. He tells us to look ahead, to, to heed the warning and to look ahead where your sin is leading you and, and where your choices are leading you now by looking at them right now. But then he gives us this final warning. He says, so because of this, because of sin, because of, of desire, because of temptation, he says, Look at verse 16. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. He says, because of all of this, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by our culture. 
Don't be deceived by your temptation. Don't be deceived by your perception of things. Don't be deceived. But three things specifically that we can take and, and not be deceived on. The first one is to not be deceived. As verse 16 says, not to be deceived. Don't be deceived about, about sin. Every thought and every desire left unchecked will always produce something in your life. Every thought, every desire will always produce something in your life. If it's left unchallenged, if it's left unsurrendered, unyielded, it will always produce something. So James says, don't be, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived to think that you can do this privately and not address it and then get away with it. Secondly, he says, don't be deceived about temptation. Jesus talked about tempta- uh, temptation and dealing with temptation, and his, his solution was radical amputation. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's not so much talking about going around and physically maiming your body, but he says, go to extreme measures to make sure that, that you're not deceived in temptation. And one of the ways to not be deceived in temptation is to cut it off at its root, to deal with it at its root source. That would mean, and this might sound radical, but Jesus talked about radical temptation. That might mean that if your phone causes you to sin and gives you access to places and things unaccountable in a way that, that continues to lead you into sin, then learn to live life without a phone. If unaccountable access on, online or any number of things, and I'm, I realize I'm talking about more on those private matters, but anything in life, anything in life that continually trips you up and leads you back into sin, Jesus has cut it off. He says it's better to go through life without that thing and to not let it affect your relationship with Jesus than to hang on to that thing and allow it to master you and to control your life. So it's to recognize and not be deceived about temptation. I think one of the deceptions with temptation is that, well, this was, that was the last time. It won't happen again. I'm not going back there again. That's the deception of temptation. And then the third thing he says is don't be deceived about your Savior. Don't be deceived about sin. Don't be deceived about temptation. And don't be deceived about your Savior. Look how the Savior is described. Verse 17, one more time. Every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. It says every good and perfect gift is from above. The most perfect and the most good gift that God has ever given you was the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. And as we sang at the beginning of our worship set, one of the songs that we sang, one of the, one of the phrases was, everything is found in you. Everything is found in you. And everything that our desires or temptation would want to lead us to find outside of the boundaries and parameters that God has given us to protect us, to, to, to really lead us into fullness of life that he desires, everything can be found in him. Th- those things can be found in him as we put him at the center and we focus upon him. But God's desire for each one of our lives, his desire for your life, is, is abundance of life. And that abundance of life only comes as we allow him to continue to strip off those things that would hold us back, those things that would hinder the the development of his life in us, the things that would hinder us from truly knowing Jesus and knowing our Savior and knowing the perfect perfect goodness that he desires to work in our lives with. Won't you stand with me this morning as we prepare to close? One of the most amazing things about our Savior and his perfection and in his goodness towards us is that he recognizes that while while we will face sin and we'll face temptation and we'll face all these things that would come our way in life, is that at the end of it, it's recognizing that God in his grace, he recognizes we're going to face these and he recognizes that at times we're not going to get it right. But he says that when we come with sincerity and confession 
and opening in our hearts in, in 1 John 1, 9, talking to believers, written to believers, to followers of Jesus. He says, if you confess your sin, if you come and you confess, you renounce it, you denounce it, you, you say, God, I'm done with this. And you confess it, that he is faithful and just. In other words, he's good and he's perfect. And he'll forgive you. And he'll, he'll, he'll cleanse you of all those things. He'll wash it all away as if it's not happened. Because he's paid the sacrifice for those decisions. And so this morning, um, we're going to sing in just a second, but can I invite you just to bow your heads and close your eyes? One of the things here at State College Assembly is we never take for granted that every single person listening this morning or who's gathered here, we never take for granted or assume that everyone here is in right relationship with Jesus Christ. And friends, this morning, I've taken time to talk about the importance of that place of repentance, that place of decision where we give Jesus control of our life. We acknowledge our need for him. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to make that decision to place your faith in Jesus, can I just encourage you to raise your hand? I just want to see where you're at and pray for you. Jesus, raise your hand and say, I need to make that decision to let Jesus be first in my life, to take control of my life. And then secondly, friends, for those who are here this morning, as I've talked about that, that lure of temptation, the way the, world, the way the world always tries to seep in and tries to shape and form our lives, our minds, and our desires, and our propensity really to drift, to, to pull away. I really believe for each one of us here, for many of us here, that, that there are things in your own life, things that even as I've talked about, that, that the Holy Spirit's been bringing to light, and, and perhaps it's not even so much in, in an area of compromise or an area of temptation that you've continued to fail in, but perhaps it's even down to what I talked about at the beginning, of recognizing how the world is always trying to seep in. The world is always trying to shape you into its value system. And that you want to be able this morning, even as we, as we end in a time of worship, um, you want to take time to come and find a place to kneel and pray and say, God, I just give you my heart and I give you my mind, and I invite you to do your renewing work in me. Bring, show me if there's places in my life that are, have compromised. Show me if there's places in my life that I've yet to really allow you to do your freedom and your work in in the way that you desire. And if that's you this morning, friends, the, the altar space is open. I've asked the worship team, they're going to lead us in one more song uh, this morning, and then I'll come back and dismiss those who need to go. But as they lead us in worship, friends, you begin to come, find a place to pray, just shut yourself in with God and allow him to do his work in you.